Welcome to this week's episode of The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook. So, first off, there's a lot going on, Steve. Yeah, there's too much going on. <laughs> um, yeah. Too much for our brief podcast. Right. So, we have a plan, dear listeners. We're going to do some of it next week and some of it this week. <laughs> <laughs> space it out a little bit. Yeah. So next week, we're going to take a, take a look around the state a little bit. We're going to look at the just flurry of activity we've seen here in Boston. Um, we'll touch on a little bit of what that what things that includes in our Something to Watch segment. Um, and also, we're going to look out west at a whole bunch of comings and goings out there as well. Out in West Mass. West Mass. We're even going to play the song, I think. Yes, get yes. The song. Apologies to everyone <laughs> actually in western Massachusetts who are like very, very offended by the term West Mass, but it's the song. The song is yeah, so catchy. Exactly, it's the song, and we're going to have Rich Parr on, which is exciting. Yes, Rich Parr, friend of the podcast, friend of the pod, research director for the Pauline Group. Yes, um, but for now, it's Infrastructure Week in the horse race. We did a and released a new poll on transportation. We just released it this week, um, and there's also big news in terms of infrastructure. The U.S. News and World Report best states to live in rankings were released this week, and Massachusetts fell from first to eighth. But before we get to all that, we have a special guest in the podcast this week, former state senator Ben Downing. Um, we're going to ask him ab about all the goings on in the state Senate. Um, he was a former member of the state Senate Ethics Committee. Um, we're also going to ask him a bit about Democratic Party politics and a whole bunch of other things. Um, senator Downing was a former staffer for Congressman Bill Delahunt, Richard Neal, John Oliver, um, served in the state legislature from 2006 to 2016. Welcome, Senator Downing. Thanks for having me, guys. It's an honor. <laughs> an honor. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to start with a general question. It's been a bit of a tough year for the Senate. You know, there's been a lot of sort of negative headlines out there. Uh, give us a sense of what your reaction has been to the news that's come out of the Senate in terms of um, both the, the investigations and then also just how, you know, where the Senate is in general and, and um, how it's doing its job. Yeah, I, I think any time there is um, a challenging set of circumstances like this, and certainly what's going on in the Senate right now is unique. When I was chair of the Ethics Committee, we had uh, – Two matters referred to us, one uh, around Senator Wilkerson, uh, one around then-Senator Marzilli. And uh, that didn't uh, have the broad implications for the Senate, uh, the way that the issues that are currently before the Ethics Committee do. And I think it just, you know, it casts a cloud over all of the good work that the broad majority of senators uh, are doing right now and are trying to do. Tell us what uh, you mean by that, the broad implications for the Senate. Uh, because, you know, you look to take your cues from leadership. And that isn't uh, to say that you're going to agree with leadership on everything. Uh, that isn't to say that uh, you're always going to be in the good graces of leadership. But there is an expectation that uh, the leadership of the body uh, will set a tone that allows members to have the debates about the issues that they care about, uh, that they uh, told their constituents they were going to work on, knowing full well that there's going to be a diversity of opinion there. Uh, unfortunately now, all of that uh, takes a second, if not a third, uh, you know, backseat uh, to uh, the, the investigations that are before the Ethics Committee. And that's especially difficult for members because you cannot talk about what is going on before the Ethics Committee, or at least you are not supposed to talk about what's going on before the Ethics Committee. Uh, one positive in all of this uh, is that uh, you could not have um, a better person running that committee right now. Uh, Mike Rodrigues is someone who's respected across the entire uh, ideological spectrum. Um, and I don't think anyone looks at Mike Rodrigues uh, and says that he'll do anything other than 
uh, follow the facts uh, and make a determination with the best interest of the public in mind. Can you talk a little bit about the timing of the this kind of blow up related to Stan Rosenberg and the leadership fight and the natural chaos, for lack of a better term, uh, for you know, approaching end of session and budget time as as a former state senator who experienced all of this, maybe not the extent of, of the scandal. What what can we kind of expect is going on behind the scenes, you know, for these individual senators who are just trying to get money for their districts? Two things uh, can uh, throw a legislative body um, completely into, um, you know, sort of uncharted waters. Uh, those two things are uh, a leadership fight and a scandal of some sort. Uh, and we have Here both. <laughs> you have both wrapped up in one, uh, which is the worst case scenario. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, members are left, you know, sort of wondering who's going to be uh, in uh, the Senate presidency and who's then going to be uh, on the team that they seek to fill out. And, and I think that just adds a great degree of uncertainty, right? Members are trying to figure out how do I push for this initiative or that initiative in my uh, current position, uh, not knowing if uh, he or she will be in that position uh, in the next term for good or for ill. Um, So it adds a great degree uh, of uncertainty, and quite frankly, it impacts their ability uh, to work with the House, uh, to negotiate with the administration, and then, uh, you know, to deal with what is uh, a pretty interesting upcoming election. So how does, I mean, how do individual senators navigate that? I mean, it sounds like quite a challenge to know what paths you're supposed to go down to try to get any of these things done. In conversations with your former colleagues, how are they dealing with this? Um, I'll leave that uh, to uh, to my conversations with them. But I would say that some of the, the lessons you take from a time like this, lessons you take when uh, the body goes through a difficult time, uh, is that, quite frankly, you can't be uh, dependent on leadership uh, to uh, chart the course completely for yourself. You need to be able to do your own homework, put yourself in a solid position. Uh, you can't assume that leadership is going to set the message in your district. It's your job uh, to be out there in your district, hearing from your constituents, and quite frankly, answering tough questions from them. Uh, that's another part of this, right? When you're having your coffee and conversation in your small towns or your, your meetings at your neighborhood councils, uh, you've got to be able to respond to these questions uh, and not let them linger and let people know where you stand. Um, and I've often found that um, while constituents might not like the answer that they get, they'd much rather know that they got it directly from someone, uh, and that will you know, put them in a far better position. So I think it is, it's a time where senators have to sort of you know, assess where they stand in their district, uh, come to their position, and be comfortable with you know, asserting a degree of independence that they may not have otherwise done. And I think that's what most of them are, are doing right now. Talk a little bit about a leadership fight. Like, let's break down the, the like, semantics of a leadership fight. <laughs> You've been through one yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, leadership fight probably gives it more uh, credence than it is, right? Like, in many ways, they end up being, you know, popularity contests. They're, especially in a small body like the Senate, you're talking about, you know, 40 members. Um, it is incredibly difficult, right? We went through a, a leadership, um, you know, debate where uh, the two choices were, you know, two senators who at that point I had worked a great deal with, had a great deal of respect for uh, in uh, Stan Rosenberg and in Steve Brewer. Um, that's always difficult, right? Um, there's no um, no easy way out when there are only two choices. And I think it becomes a, um, 
it becomes a very difficult situation for the body if it goes on for some time because not only are lines drawn once, but they are drawn and redrawn and redrawn again, and those become fracture points uh, for future debates. Uh, you know, it's not just, well, they were all on one side and this group was on the other side, but, you know, everybody was on the wrong side of everybody at some point or another uh, when you have as many candidates out there as you do. So I, I think it is, um, it's never an easy transition, and it's only that much tougher to be doing it in the midst of what is a really unique and challenging set of circumstances. Um, and all while uh, the great majority of those senators I know want to do the right thing, which is make sure that, you know, that victims have the ability to come forward uh, to uh, make their case, uh, that they can do so comfortably without any fear of retribution, and that everyone uh, who wants to be a part of the political process is comfortable coming forward um, and being able to, to um, you know, to not have to fear anything while they're up there. That's, that's the thing, looking back on a place that I care deeply about and that, you know, created a lot of opportunity for me and, and gave me the opportunity to serve my community. Uh, the frustrating thing for me is that anyone would ever feel like they couldn't simply go up there and make their case and, and that they would somehow be victims for having done that is, uh, it's extremely troubling to me. Talk a bit about that, because some of the criticisms or the questions at the mm -hmm. beginning about the logistics of the investigation were the degree to which the committee um, and the investigators had independence and the, the uh, people who came either to talk about their own experiences would have anonymity, mm -hmm. you know, anonymity of witnesses and so forth. How much confidence should, you know, staffers in the building considering coming forward mm -hmm. and the public at large have in the way that this investigation is going on? Yeah, uh I don't know that there is an easy answer on this one, right? It's something that I've thought about a great deal. Again, I have more respect for Mike Rodgers than almost anyone I've served with, so I trust Mike's ability uh, to navigate these waters. Um, at the same point, I think it's why it's good that there isn't just one investigation ongoing, right? The Senate Ethics Committee's jurisdiction only uh, extends to Senate rules, right? So, uh, and Senate members. Um, so there are uh, you know, sort of limits to what they are able to look into and to come to conclusions on. Um, so I think uh, I think they need to be very careful around that, and I think they're trying to be, but it is not an easy way to figure out what the right, um, what the right structure is that ensures that. Um, I think the closest thing you can get to the right structure is having multiple investigations. It's the role that the attorney general and the district attorney's office in Suffolk County uh, are playing. I think that's critically important. Uh, I think without that, uh, you wouldn't have that outlet for people who might say, I don't want to come to the Senate. Um, I think it's important that there are multiple outlets. I think that's the only way to get at it because of the limitations of the Ethics Committee and, and just the, the inherent tension uh, in having an internal body make that decision. Um, you know, there's just, there's no way to have that internal body uh, be able to look at it in a way that everyone will be comfortable with. So multiple points, I think, is critical. There's a lot of attention that's being put, rightly so, to a certain extent, on the Senate, you know, given the investigations into Stan Rosenberg and, you know, the, the situation with, with his partner, Brian Hafner. But the House is on the verge of releasing its own report. Clearly, this is, you know, harassment and issues related to that isn't simply isolated to the Senate itself. What's your take on kind of the development um, and, you know, what we could potentially see in other aspects of the building? <sighs> Uh, I think that one of the constants, if there has been a constant, of the last six to 12 months uh, is that, um, you know, the truth that every single institution has not done enough uh, to proactively and preemptively 
uh, address, limit, uh, and weed out sexual harassment um, and harassment of all kinds. Uh, so to the extent that uh, the House is releasing this port, that the uh, administration is trying to take their steps, those are all positive things. And every organization, public, private, nonprofit, what have you, ought to be going through those steps because this is not a Hollywood thing. This is not a political thing. This is a society thing, and every organization and institution has that responsibility. Public institutions and organizations have a greater responsibility in my mind. Uh, We are entrusted with being the representatives of the public. They uh, absolutely uh, deserve to know that uh, we are acting uh, in uh, the highest of ethical standards uh, and with their best interests in mind. And so uh, I think if anything, uh, you know, uh, those of us who have had the honor of serving in public service uh, and those that currently are ought to be uh, holding us and them to the highest standard possible. And whether that is creating an independent body like Senator Eldridge has called for uh, or others, I think we need to look at every step possible to make sure that anyone who is a victim uh, feels comfortable coming forward and that uh, we are preemptively and proactively trying to make sure that not only uh, we address these things when they come up, but quite frankly, uh, we avoid them coming up in the first place. So one of the impacts that it seems like this investigation has had or that all, all of the turmoil has had and the, its questions around leadership um, is that it's it's made the, the certainly the legislative process much more difficult and, and, and strained. It wasn't the, easy last term, so. Well, that's what I was going to say. It strained the already strained relationship or, or sort of uncertain relationship between the House and the Senate. So how does the how does the state Senate get back to a point where it's, you know, functioning smoothly and sort of an equal partner to the House of Representatives, um, which you know, from the outside, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily seem like that's always been the case in recent years. Yeah, uh, I think there's a healthy tension between the House and the Senate. I think there always should be. Um, you know, when I was running for office in 2006, the House was the liberal body. The Senate was generally more aligned with the administration. So there is a natural sort of ebb and flow uh, to all of this. Uh, I don't know how uh, there uh, how you get to back to that natural tension until there is a a stable leadership team in place in the Senate. I think it's critically important uh, that uh, the Senate have not only a Senate president, but a a leadership team in place uh, that clearly is not there just for six or 12 months, uh, but is at least there through the next term, right? That's all they're ever promised. And I think until you have that point, there will be you know, less than the normal process moving forward, right? There will be that um, extra level of tension as people try and figure out, am I negotiating with someone on a one-year budget deal or is this someone I'm going to be seeing at the table uh, again and again? And that goes at every committee level, right? Because uh, while it is a leadership thing and while that's where we focus, uh, the joint committees are all looking saying, is this going to be my partner Uh, on this bill, and if we make a deal on funding in this budget, uh, will I have someone on the other side of the table to honor? A couple quick last questions. One is that it seems like we're seeing a lot of primaries this Mm -hmm. year in Congress, in the Senate, in the House, you know, DA primaries Mm -hmm. in Middlesex and Suffolk counties. Is that a healthy thing for the party, a healthy thing for the legislature? Absolutely, positively, without a doubt, it's a healthy thing. You know, Deval Patrick was a better candidate because he had to beat Tom Riley. The only people worse uh, at uh, predicting what's going to happen in the future uh, than political prognosticators uh, are party officials themselves. Um, And I think that it's healthy to have that tension at the local level and to have people challenging elected officials and for new voices to come up. That's been one of the most exciting things happening right now. 
just lost like half of our listeners with party officials. Being <laughs> Speaking truth to power, <laughs> uh, uh, what's your read on the Democratic contenders for governor? I think they have an uphill battle, and I think they'd all say they have an uphill battle. I think it's troubling to see the National Democratic Party just giving up and washing its hands. Um, I think that's exactly the wrong thing to be doing. I understand they've got to be pragmatic, but it seems like that's the mistake that we always make. We walk away from races that people say there's no chance to win. Uh, It's just silly as far as I'm concerned. But they've got an uphill battle, um, and I think everyone would say as much. Last question. Mm -hmm. Can we expect to see your name on any sort of ballot anytime soon? I'd like to think so, but... Who knows where the opportunities will come from? And I'm not trying to be evasive. I, I really am not. I, uh, my number one job is being a dad to a really cute 10-month-old right now who's trying to figure out how to walk. Um, but I, I love politics. Uh, I love public service. And, you know, I, I consider myself incredibly lucky to have had the honor to serve. And if there's another opportunity in the future, uh, then I'd love to be a part of it again. But I also like what I'm doing now. NextAmp's a great company. State Senator Ben Downing, thank you for thank you for being here. Thank you all for having me. Looking forward to listening. So it's infrastructure week on the horse race. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we have two big things out this week. So the first was the U.S. News and World Report rankings, which showed that the state of Massachusetts slipped from being the best place to live to being the eighth best place to live. Um, so like all these rankings, there's you know possible methodological critiques you could make, and people have made them. But that hasn't stopped strong reactions from politicos, from observers, from reporters. Um, Lauren, you say this is fair game um, for for uh, people who want to want to say all kinds of things that they want to say. Why is this fair game? First off, Governor Charlie Baker has made it a point to highlight the state's ranking as the top place to live in the country by U.S. News & World Report from 2017. He literally mentioned it in his State of the Commonwealth speech just this past month. Now, when you're going to tie yourself so closely to something like this, when you live by the ranking, you can die by the ranking, too. So now we have an opening for Democrats, be they the state Democratic Party or Democratic gubernatorial contenders who are looking for any opening they really have to to criticize Governor Baker and his management of the state. And this is a specific data point that they can look at and say, look, people of Massachusetts, what has happened over the last year under Governor Baker's leadership? I'm paraphrasing for the Democrats. You know, Governor Baker's leadership over the last year has led to this drop in the state's ranking. Uh, one of the biggest talking points here is is the state's downgrade and its bond rating. It's the first time this has happened in 30 years. Um, and it happened in July, um, and and that was something that was a, par- a part of um, you know the, the state's fiscal health uh, is a part of the ranking system as well as infrastructure, which we can talk a little bit more about later as well. Right. That w- those are kind of the two big things that we've heard mentioned, both by the Democratic Party and the candidates. We heard f- about fiscal stability. There were some other things in there. Cost of living was another one where we're actually number 46 out of 50. But there were a bunch of them that re- that did specifically relate to infrastructure. So overall infrastructure, the, the rankings had us 45th, um, transportation 42nd, road quality 46th, commute time 47th, lots of rankings in sort of the mid to you know, bottom of the 40s. Um, so that that was something that we also looked at at a poll that we released this week, not these rankings specifically, but just the question of transportation, um, and found that voters are feeling the same thing. You know, they're also perceiving that the transportation system really hasn't gotten better in recent years. Um, other polls that we've done have shown just that in addition to having not gotten better, there's 
just a perception that there are a lot of problems. You know, traffic is bad. Traffic's getting worse. There's a lot of frustration. You know, the T's not really getting better. But, you know, you see that then in the, the statistics about the system itself here in the rankings and, the, and the, the numbers that were used to generate these rankings. Yeah, it's interesting that to a certain extent, U.S. News and World Report rankings, whether they be best states or best colleges, they're kind of trying to quantify something that's intangible. But when you specifically look at this decrease in rating and kind of the, the other connections to commuting and quality of life as it relates to getting to and from work or whatever else people do when they transport themselves around the state, it it goes back to this general quality of life type thing. And if it's an issue for voters, as we just saw in this poll that that Mass Inc. and the Barr Foundation released this week, um, I'm, I'm always just fascinated to see the extent to which it is a bad situation or it's perceived to be bad by the voters themselves. Yeah, and I think the, the answer in this case is that it is perceived to be to be a problem, you know, that not that many people see it as as having gotten better. And the other thing that we've been watching for a number of years now is how highly people prioritize this issue. And since we started looking at that, you know, we've asked the questions in slightly different ways over the years, so it's not a, you know, direct tracking. But from what we can tell, there's been an, a big increase in the in the importance that voters are placing on this issue, that, are, that they're placing on transportation specifically. Um, you know, there have been some events that you could potentially point to you know, the storms in 2015 being one and the, you know, many problems that happened then in the MBTA and have happened since. Um, the fact that traffic really has gotten measurably worse recently. Um, but, you know, whatever the cause is, it is something that voters are paying more attention to. Interesting. And do you think that there's going to be some something that kind of brings us all to a head? Or is this just going to be something that's, you know, traffic is just going to get worse and worse and people are just going to get more and more frustrated by it and it's just going to kind of be this, like, downward cycle? That's a great question. And I think one of the things that we just don't know is the effect, the ability of um, the particularly the Democratic gubernatorial campaigns to elevate this issue. You know, there are some other campaigns, I think, that might try. You know, you've got a bunch of Democratic primaries, for instance, and the state legislature, uh, you know, and the state legislature, like we talked about with with. Senator Downing, um, and you could imagine all of them potentially trying. You know, we, we, you sort of hope that that's the way that change would happen. You know, it'd be much, it'd be vastly preferable to have it be that way rather than some catalyzing incident like, you know, a collapse of some piece of infrastructure or some sort of accident or something like that. Uh, but the other thing that was interesting about this to me, uh, and that sort of speaks to that challenge, is that despite all of the anxiety that voters are feeling about this, they still by and large approve of how Governor Baker is handling transportation. Um, so 57% said that they approve of how he's handling transportation, 25% disapprove. It's not quite as good as some of the numbers you see on just his general job performance, but it's still a really good number. Um, that that actually brings me to a point that I wanted to ask you about um, in the end, um, moving on to our next segment, which is this idea that nothing really seems to stick to Governor Baker, you know, that people do feel all this anxiety about transportation. There have been a lot of different sort of problems that, you know, have been in the news recently, but but it doesn't really seem to stick. You wrote about this in Playbook a couple days ago. Tell us what you found. Yeah, the, the nonstick nature of Governor Baker and kind of the issues around him leads to the subsequent phrasing of Governor Baker as Teflon Charlie. It's I love a good nickname. Um, and, and really, it's, it's the sense that Governor Baker has these high approval ratings kind of despite these issues that are swirling in the state. Life in Massachusetts is not perfect. Life's not perfect anywhere. But... There are problems that voters are feeling, whether it's related to infrastructure, like we just talked about, you know, road quality, whatever, but they're not pinning the blame 
on Governor Baker necessarily. And this is very much to the chagrin of the Democrats who are trying to put someone else in the corner office. Um, you know, they are trying to tie Governor Baker to the problems in the state, which is fair because he is the chief executive in theory. If you if you want to have someone answer to the issues in the state itself, you would blame it on the top person and say that, you know, if if it's a new person in the corner office, they can make change in, in different ways and things like that. That argument is essentially not getting any traction, at least per the polling that you've done, Stephen, and so many others have done. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, is that it's not just quality of life issues. It's also management issues, you know, which was basically how Baker positioned himself in 2014 and, you know, how I, I think the administration has continued to position itself. You know, there have been a lot of kinds of little stories here, little stories there, some big stories, whether it's, you know, the Northern Pass stories about, you know, trying to import clean energy through New Hampshire and the problems that that's run into, you know, the, the effort to yeah, switch. It was voted down. Yeah, and the effort to switch, you know, to the the health health insurance plans of, you know, many public employees, you know, the tax data breach, their the MBTA, the credit downgrade, you know, there's just a bunch of stuff, but none of it really seems to stick, which I, I find fascinating. Yeah, and, and in the conversations that I think both you and I have had and it it's kind of this ongoing thing when you talk about Governor Baker's reelection chances and things like that. And the argument that I've heard in subsequent conversations is that for the most part, the Massachusetts economy is good. If the Massachusetts economy changes, if there is a downturn, if there is a shock to the system, that's one of the crucial areas where we're going to start to see that flip if it does occur between the voters and, and breaking from Governor Baker. But because these are all kind of these other things that are swirling around and, you know, Baker can kind of avoid them for the most part, it we're not seeing that break necessarily. Another thing, too, and, you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, a lot of senior Democrats in Massachusetts are not outwardly and vocally critical of Governor Baker. Yes, the state party is because they have to be. Yes, the Democratic candidates for governor are because they have to be. But you don't see Robert DeLeo getting up and criticizing Governor Baker. You don't necessarily see Senator Elizabeth Warren getting up and criticizing Governor Baker. If there were more of a chorus of opposition to what Governor Baker is doing, whether it's to highlight these issues in the state itself or, you know, for any other reason, it's it's fair to assume that there would be more of a narrative around Baker's issues. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that pressure starts from the voters. You know, when voters are dissatisfied with something, sometimes it comes from leaders pointing out things that voters should be paying attention to. Um, you know, and in this case, I think it's hard to tell exactly where it comes from. You know, that Baker's approval numbers are very high and have always been very high. So that makes leaders less interested in criticizing someone that could potentially harm their own political prospects, that makes voters less likely to pay attention to these things, which keep his poll numbers high. And there's just sort of this circle that that happens, you know, so people ask, like, how does this number stick? And I think it's hard to know exactly where to say that circle began. But what you can say is that it's now spinning in that way. Um, something that Senator Downing mentioned at the beginning is that even the National Democratic Party seems to be at least sort of passing on the question um, of of whether or not they're gonna they're gonna contest the race you know the head the vice chair of the Democratic Governors Association Gina Raimondo said, 
basically that she, well, she said in the Globe, Charlie, I think, is very popular and is doing a good job. I've enjoyed working with him, and we have a good bipartisan collaborative relationship. That's a remarkable thing to say for the vice chair of an organization whose responsibility it is to get Democrats elected. And when she was asked about Governor Baker's reelection chances, this, is, this was a direct opportunity for her to offer a criticism of Governor Baker in a way that is completely fair and open to her. And she passed. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a really, really indicative sense of kind of where things are nationally. Obviously, the Democratic campaigns for governor are not happy about that comment. They're not happy about this stance and that stature. And I think they're going to do everything that they can to create more national interest in this race. But, I mean, Teddy Warren's team basically said – screw it. If national Democrats aren't going to be involved here, we don't need them. We're going to do this ourselves. Yeah. So that'll be something to watch for sure. Um, speaking of things we're watching, there's a couple things that that, I, that we thought we'd quickly go through. Not all things to watch in the future, but just things we've been paying attention to for the last few weeks and things that are changing actually pretty quickly that, you know, these are among the, the way too much happening that we mentioned at the, at the top of the show. Um, so first, the Suffolk County DA's race and all of the things that, 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 that have happened there. Lauren, tell us what's going on there. Yes. State Rep. Evandro Carvalho, who was one of the contenders for the special state Senate election to replace Linda Dorsina Fori, has dropped out of the special state Senate race and is now running for district attorney. So the impact of that is that it leaves only Nick Collins running for that seat. So Correct. pretty much future state Senator Nick Collins at that point. Right. And a much more competitive DA's race. Yes. Um, that that's you know that's one of many races that we're now going to have going on in Boston that we'll ra- that we'll look at next week. You've got primaries in Congress. You've got primaries for state rep. You've got a DA's race now. You've got a um, a state senate race that seems like it's been decided. Just a whole bunch going on there that we'll be looking at next week. Um, also, lots of movement out in. I guess we're calling it West Mass or Western Massachusetts. <laughs> and there we, there we have um, several, re- we have retirements. We have one of a state rep who's passed away. We have a, a representative who's less the, left the Democratic Party to become an independent. Um, so a lot of upheaval also out there, and we'll be looking at that next week. Absolutely. And the last bullet point to watch. So Steve Kerrigan, one of the dozen-ish contenders in the Massachusetts 3rd Congressional race, has dropped out. So now the field has winnowed slightly. It's still a dozen-ish. It's still a dozen-ish. It's still a lot of people running. Yes. All right. Well, now for the answer to last week's trivia question, which was, there are three political parties in Massachusetts, Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians. You can also remain unenrolled, but there are a number of other political designations you can select. So the question was, name three of them. There were a bunch of possible answers, but the winner this week is former State Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi, who identified the United Independent Party, the Green Party, and the Pirate Party, which is a real thing. Yarg. Anyway, so for being the first with the correct answer, Jim wins a free subscription to the horse race and an autographed copy of our SoundCloud page. Yes. So congratulations, Jim. Thank you for listening, Jim. (laughs) And now for this week's question. In 1994, former Governor Bill Weld won re-election as governor in a landslide with 71% of the statewide vote. How many of the state's 351 cities and towns did Weld win? Send us your answers in all of the usual channels, or maybe some unusual channels. I'll take a message in a bottle, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) This week only for a 1,000 extra horse race trivia points. You can also send your answer to Horse Race Global Headquarters, enclosed in a printed copy of a Massachusetts PD-43 from 1994. I was hoping it was going to be in like a PDF or a Microsoft Word document. PD-43 is just like the nerd Bible in Massachusetts, so yes, um, that can never have too many. Never. Never, ever. Anyway, I'm Steve Cazella, the Massing Polling Group. 
And I'm Lauren Dzenski. Our producer this week is Hannah Shinatri. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you so much for listening.